What makes us, as humans, different? Even, shall I say, better than monkeys? Well, maybe not much these days, but we do have a few things going for us as a species since Charlie Darwin said we came down from the trees. Things that make us smarter, more human, more special than our primate cousins. It's our ability to think constructively, to feel empathetically, and to create a world around us. It's the arts and sciences that make our lives better and make us more special in many ways than our primate cousins. Hello everybody, I'm Brian Hanna. Welcome to another episode of Better Than Monkeys. Every summer, thousands of people descend upon a 750-acre lot just on the shores of Lake Chautauqua. And situated on this lot is a wonderful facility called the Chautauqua Institution. 7,500 people or so live there all summer long. The institution offers a nine-week season, which is full of lectures and concerts and performances. And over 8,000 students enroll annually in the Chautauqua summer schools, which offer courses in art, music, dance, theater, writing skills, and a variety of other special interests. Over 100,000 people attend special public events on the campus of the Chautauqua Institution. The Chautauqua Institution is a wonderful organization. It's a beautiful facility, and if you'd like to check them out, you can find more information on the Chautauqua Institution at chq.org. Well, a couple of weeks back, our friends at the Chautauqua Institution called me and asked if I would be willing to help them out by doing an interview for their podcast series, CHQ&A. I asked who the subject of the interview was, and they said it was the venerable trumpet soloist, educator, jazz band leader, author, Wynton Marsalis. Now, I'm a trumpet player. I've been playing for about 40 years. I grew up with Wynton Marsalis as a role model, so how could I say no? And I'm really excited to be able to bring to you today that interview with Wynton Marsalis, thanks to our friends at the Chautauqua Institution. Here is my interview with Wynton Marsalis. From the Cohen Multimedia Studio on the grounds of Chautauqua Institution, welcome to CHQ&A, Chautauqua's podcast. I'm Jordan Steves. Today, we're pleased to present a special conversation with Wynton Marsalis, Managing and Artistic Director of Jazz at Lincoln Center. Marsalis and the Jazz at Lincoln Center Orchestra will visit Chautauqua during our Week 9, 2019, August 17th through the 25th, with a number of live performances, including with the Chautauqua Symphony Orchestra. Marsalis will also speak on the amphitheater lecture platform to open and close the week on Exploring Race and Culture, August 19th and 23rd. Guest interviewer Brian Hanna of WQLN in Erie, Pennsylvania, spoke with Wynton Marsalis by phone from Cohen Multimedia Studio. Exploring cultural and social issues through music is nothing new for trumpet soloist, composer, educator, and band leader Wynton Marsalis. In 1994, Wynton Marsalis premiered his first big band composition commissioned by the Jazz at Lincoln Center, Blood on the Fields, about a couple's journey from slavery to freedom. In 1997, this powerful work won him a Pulitzer Prize. Well, here we are, nearly 25 years later, and Wynton has premiered another masterpiece, which again explores America's relationship to racial matters, the ever-funky lowdown. Hello, everybody. I'm Brian Hanna from WQLN Radio, coming to you live from the Cohen Multimedia Studios on the grounds of the Chautauqua Institution. And my guest today is none other 
than the venerable Wynton Marsalis. Hey, Wynton, thanks for joining us today. All right, how you doing? It's a pleasure. It's really exciting to have you joining us at Chautauqua this summer. There's some wonderful programming in store for the audiences. And you're returning for an entire week of programming this August, and this follows an extremely successful residency here in about 2016. What, in your opinion, makes Chautauqua the ideal setting for jazz at Lincoln Center? I think uh, the, the, the history and tradition of programming, the high level of the uh, of, of what goes on in terms of all the different lecturers and people who speak and, and, and performers, the quality of the audience, like people who are really engaged with uh, the issues that concern our democracy and also a spiritual upside. Like there's a, a feeling of spirituality that, that permeates Chautauqua. I think it's all, all people who are deeply concerned about the meaning of our, of our, concerned about our identity and the meaning of our democracy as it, as it expresses itself in different in different forms and disciplines. When you come this year, you're going to be performing a piece that was commissioned by Jazz at Lincoln Center called The Ever Funky Lowdown. Now, when you talk right. about spirituality, uh, this piece is very spiritual. You cover a lot of ground in this piece of music. You cover war and complacency, collusion, isolationism, slavery. There's a common theme that runs throughout it, which is we win, but at what price? Do you want to give us a little overview of Ever Funky Lowdown? Ever Funky Lowdown is a game. And um, it's a game that, that we all play. And it, it, you play the game and you find out that by winning, you lose. The first half describes what all empires do to consolidate their their victory in their sense of themselves, which is first they they identify some others, they defeat those others, they redefine who those others are and their their relationship to those others, and they're really victorious when they get the others that they defeated to espouse their narrative. In other words, they the defeated give the narrative of the victors. So when you hear the, the, the narrative of, of those who have won coming out of the, the mouths of those who have lost, they are the victims of the ever funky lowdown. The second half is the prizes that are dispersed to the winning side. And the second, so the first half is possible for you to think that I'm talking about left versus right, but I'm not really talking about that. I'm talking about just a general human condition of, uh, you can go back to Julius Caesar or you can go Genghis Khan or, or Adolf Hitler or any kind of people who were able to consolidate their power and defeat and destroy other people by constructing a narrative that made those people evil. Um, then you, you, the second half shows what the victors win. And it's all things that we have today, like uh, security through surveillance or the fact that you have to have an ID to go everywhere, a constant fear or uh, segregation of the generations and segregation of people. And so it goes through those things and it concludes that the ultimate prize to win is to not have to do anything. So at the end, the, the man who's been the narrator, like a kind of president, uh, despotic kind of figure, game show host, all rolled into one, he concludes that you know, here's your ultimate prize, the freedom, and all each prize is given a freedom. It's really a, a slavery, but it's called a freedom. And the ultimate prize is you don't have to do anything that doesn't concern, that doesn't help anybody but yourself. And the, the conclusion of it is that you have to fight against this. It doesn't say how you do it, but just uh, don't be complacent. It's a beautifully written libretto. There's one section which says, why do we pick slavery 
over freedom. And then there's a beautiful quote in there that says, when you act against your best interest to attack a remote enemy with no power to do you any harm, when you're ecstatic (laughs) about identifying yourself as a winner, even though you never get a single spoil, when you are happy to accept far less than your participation could have earned and honored to be rewarded for the achievement of staying home, congratulations. You've won one <laughs> game of the ever funky lowdown and you're the donkey. You know, right. you follow that up with George Clinton said, free your mind and your behind will follow. Right. As I was reading the libretto, I thought, you know, this is very similar to a cantata. If you think about it, it's like a social cantata. It's a social commentary that really uh, serves two purposes. It's going to be a brilliant way to make people think about stuff that makes them uncomfortable. But it's also an opportunity to use music, which unites us all as the medium for this wonderful piece. Right. And the, and the music of, uh, of Devil Funk is, is largely happy music. The music is not heavy and sad because for the winners, things is very happy. It's always happy. So maybe maybe they're describing uh, the freedom papers that slaves had to have. So that's a happy song. And they're, they're talking about the type of victory that's achieved when the North and South work, work together with something like the Fugitive Slave Law, Fugitive Slave Act, Fugitive Slave Law, which, whichever one it is. But and it, it, it likens that to the fact that you have to have ID everywhere you go now. Right. What do we so, give up to get to that point? Yeah, you, you, you know, something might happen. You can't go anywhere without identifying. And uh, you give up your freedoms a certain way. And if it, there's a, of course, there's a reason for it, because that's what Devil Funky also shows, that uh, there's always a reason for it. There's always some reason for you to, to abuse somebody else. There's always some reason to attack uh, a, a far weaker enemy. There's always some reason to ridicule, you know. And then ultimately those things come back on you. And this is a, a relatively large performance piece. Apparently there's a narrator and dancers and singers and the uh, orchestra going on. You want to tell us a little bit about the how you came up with the concept and how you decided to make it such a large theater piece? Well, you know, just it's just a, a concept of uses three, three, three singers, three sirens, and uh, three dancers represent the different races, an Asian dancer, a white American dancer, black American dancer, and they're young. So they represent a kind of youthful energy and vigor and a kind of questioning of what's going on. The band functions like a kind of chorus in a Greek uh, drama. We kind of comment on the action. And the narrator is the protagonist, like a, like a game show host. I just wanted it to be kind of colorful and theatrical and have a lot of different elements to it and relate to three singers are female and three dancers are male. Not only does this look like an amazing piece of music, it's probably going to end up, I hope, winning you another Pulitzer Prize uh, because this is a piece that after reading the libretto, I think everybody needs to experience the ever funky lowdown. Oh, I appreciate you saying that, but you never, you know, the prizes, you never know about that. It's just always fun to get something. It is always fun to get something. There's it. <laughs> nothing wrong with not getting it. <laughs> well, I, hopefully it's still in the works for you. You know, and um, this year, this piece fits perfectly at Chautauqua because the theme that you're trying to help illuminate this uh, season at Chautauqua is exploring race and culture in America. And the lineup, of course, includes Ever Funky Lowdown, which premiered last year at the Lincoln Center. Uh, but I also read that you might be considering some changes to the libretto before we get to hear it. 
I just tighten it up and make it make it tighter. You know, I'm just trying to figure out how to how to make it make it not meander. This is actually going to be the uh, second full performance, from what I understand. The next time anybody's going to hear it is going to be right here at Chautauqua. Yes, sir. That's pretty exciting, and it is a, a wonderful, powerful, and very charged work. So I can't wait to see this uh, happen in person. And you are uh, apparently going to make the libretto available online. Should people maybe take a few minutes to look it over before they come see the piece? Definitely. Always better to know what something is and to put it in context. Also, just to uh, get a, get a beat on it. The good thing is, when you read it, you don't you don't get a sense of the music because the libretto is heavier than the music is light. So it's a combination of those things. Also on this residency here at Chautauqua, you'll be performing a piece called The Jungle, which premieres this year in its entirety for the first time in a performance here at Chautauqua. And there's only going to be a handful of performances worldwide this year. And you'll once again be collaborating with someone you collaborated with in 2016 here at Chautauqua. It was conductor Christian Michelaru, and he's going to be working again with you on The Jungle? Right. Yeah, I love Christy. So that's going to be... uh... It's going to be a lot of fun. It's, that's a complicated piece. Now, this is called your Symphony Number no. 4. You want to tell us about it? It just uh, talks about New York City and, and all the different elements of it. It has everything from Native American to on and on and on. Uh, Linda Bernstein, George Gershwin, has a lot of references, a lot of, a lot of uh, jazz, bebop, bird. Uh, it's primal. It has a, a lot of, it's, it's, it's so many elements in it, trains. Like the subway, I always I love trains. Um, you know, just the elements I've been dealing with since I first started working in music. I have that kind of mythic elements. So I try to just constantly rework them. Spirituals, church music, call and response, time changes, digital elements, vamps, riffs, improvisations, contrapuntal. One one movement is a few contrapuntal writing. And is the jungle just uh, you with the orchestra, or is it the Jazz Lincoln Center Orchestra with the, uh, the orchestra, Jazz Lincoln Center Orchestra with the orchestra? That's exciting too. That's a lot of work for you that week because not yes, only sir. are you performing uh, two of your major pieces, but you're also going to be working in week nine with a number of lectures at the amphitheater. Do you do a lot of speaking engagements? I would assume you do because I I read online that you've got about thirty four honorary doctorates or so give or take. So, uh, uh, of course, you probably have to speak at many of those ceremonies, but uh, do you do a lot of public speaking? Yeah, I've done a lot of it. That's going to be another exciting reason to come see Wynton Marcellus. You know, uh, you're well known for being one of the most uh, profoundly outspoken social activists in music. And uh, where does that uh, come from? That? Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, absolutely, I, you are. I appreciate that assessment of me. I didn't know I was known for that, but thank oh, you. Oh, yes, you are. And uh, where does that come from? Like, where do you get your outspokenness? My mother was like that. Yeah. Your family is uh, also very famous in the music world. Of course, there's Ellis and Branford. The Marcellus family goes way back in music. How did you get your start? I'm um, just being around my father. He's a musician, seeing him play gigs. And I got He was playing with a trumpeter from New Orleans named Al Hurt. Right. The great and Al I got Hurt. a trumpet when I was six years old. And uh, yeah, I wasn't into playing until I was 12, but I was always around my father, the musicians. I was in clubs and stuff. And, you know, it was a depressed kind of scene. It wasn't like it was it was happening. I mean, it was just a few people interested in it. But I just like being around the musicians and being in clubs late at night. Yeah, I was the youngest person in the club, like, from the time I was two or three years old, I was always, uh, I just always in the kind of in the, in the nightlife. And now you're working with those kind of, of musicians all the time with jazz at Lincoln Center. Sure, but we've been doing this for uh, 30, 30, over 30, 
over 30 years. When you give your lectures, you're going to be doing uh, two morning lecture programs on race and culture. What's the opportunity for an artist and an advocate like yourself to speak on this topic? And what conversation can audiences look forward to? Well, this is a top topic that we all speak about all the time. You, you, you have the opportunity to speak about whatever you speak about. And most of us, whenever we talk, we talk about things we're interested in, about things we know about. And sometimes if we're not in public, hopefully we talk about things we don't know about, but we like to talk about. <laughs> so this is a subject that's uh, you know, always on the national mind because it's a large part of the American identity. And there's, okay. there's topics that are uncomfortable for people to talk about that still need to be addressed. Is that going to be part of your approach? Maybe, but I don't know that just the topic, the topics are not uncomfortable as long as you're saying whatever everybody believes. Right. Any topic is uncomfortable when someone who is speaking is not making the type of political concessions they have to make to the moment. And sometimes you can be known as a radical and you can make a political concession to radicalism. So it's not a matter of, of, uh, of inciting the audience. It's just a matter of expressing what things appear to be to you. Because there are always many facets in any person, no matter how much they know, they only represent one facet of whatever subject they're talking about. Tribalism and separation of, of races has been a problem in the world since day one. Uh, why do you think it is here in the 21st century now that uh, we still haven't been able to conquer uh, the desire to stay isolated and separate from other people? Because it's a part of our identity. Is it a necessary part of our identity? Well, let's, let's take it out of the, the context of a, of, a, of a group and put it in the context of you and I. Okay, I have certain problems I always had. One is, is being impatient. I'm very impatient. Right. Is it easy for me to not be impatient? No, of course not. I have, my first son is very patient. You would always say, man, you know, you're very impatient. Now he's 30. So I'll say every time I'd be around him, he would say, patience, wait. Or he would, okay. He would be right. I know it. But is it easy for me to be impatient, for, be, for me to become patient? Is it something that's just, it's not natural to me. I'm naturally impatient. So that's difficult for me to change. So it's like that extra 20 pounds somebody carries their entire life unless a doctor tells them they're going to die. Is it easy to lose that 20? <laughs> for some of us, it's impossible. Or it's like a person with a drug addiction that they're born with. That person is not, you know, it's someone who wasn't born with it. It was like kind of a choice. They say, oh, I just did this or that. But, you know, nations have their identity. They have crucibles. They have, and groups of people have them. And many times the thing you are the most proud of and that you hold up that is the source of your money and the source of your identity is the thing you have to change. That's in religious identity after religious identity. But that's the thing you don't want to change. And that goes for me or you, or it goes for a large group of people, a large group of uh, people. If you, if you go to something that's not my problem, hey, we could talk about that all day. I don't have a problem with it. But as soon as you touch on what my actual problem is, hmm, I'm not that eager to hear what you're telling me. Right. Once we have to look inside, it changes the whole topic, doesn't it? Right. For us. Right. And, and what, what I have to look inside to see is different from what you have to see. So we could get on the subject of talking about you and, hey, man, I'm very glad to talk about what you need to do. But if you could touch on that thing that I'm protecting, man, <laughs> I don't want to hear. I don't want to hear anything you have to tell me. And nations are also like that. Be it the United States, Russia, China, groups of people are like that. Be it Afro Americans, be it Muslims, Jews, be it Catholics, it doesn't matter who you're naming. 
if you touch that thing, they don't, they're not interested in you touching, you better be prepared for what's going to come with it. Well, that could end up being part of the conversation when you're here at Chautauqua this summer. We can take that and go to this next topic I had listed here, because as the managing and artistic director of Jazz at Lincoln Center, well, you know that the mission statement for JLCO is, we believe jazz is a metaphor for democracy. What an interesting time to be in that business, isn't it? The business of democracy. It's a great time for it. So how is Jazz at Lincoln Center's work influenced by what's happening politically or socially in our nation? We're more dedicated to our mission. We're more dedicated to showing people in integrated settings. We're more dedicated to explaining our history and who we are and what we're about. We're going to release 100 records in five years. It's going to show exactly who we've been across this time. The three things we started out saying in 1987, we're still saying those things. No segregation, no generation gap, and all of our music is modern. And we will reiterate that through those albums and through all the education we do. Because what that, each album is going to be scores and education will be surrounding it. And we're going to come with more force and more energy and be more dedicated to the actuality of our situation. We're a charity. People are going to this to get rich. They go into this type of thing because they believe in creating social change with art. And that's what we're going to be more dedicated to doing. And social change with art is nothing new. You know, nope. uh, that was the entire 1960s. Well, that was the entire 1860s. It was the entire 1750s. I mean, you can take your pick of time. I mean, our artist Walt Whitman, he was a one-man change in art from the Civil War period. You know, Mark Twain, as opposed to the minstrel show. And you remember, the minstrel show was much more ubiquitous. Was was The minstrel show was ubiquitous. Mark Twain was not, even though he's very popular. Also, Walt Whitman was not, but the minstrel show was. So there's always something to counterstate. Well, with today's uh, climate and the easy access to online uh, social media, people tend to be more outspoken than ever. So with so many voices all screaming at the same time, Sometimes it takes something like a work of art to uh, bring a little focus, a, a little quiet back into that world of noise. You know, I don't when it's that easy, when it's as easy as it is to make noise as it is now, I don't think anything can bring uh, focus into that in that way. I think that uh, it's just a matter of being clear in that space. It's like a Chinese restaurant with 2,000 dishes on it. I mean, okay, maybe you, maybe maybe number seventy three is a great dish, but <laughs> somebody better point us to it. <laughs> exactly. That's kind of what it feels like now. You need that direction, and this is a great way to do it. And that you know that direction comes from from leadership, and 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 there's a certain type of leadership and education that's lacking. But our job as a nonprofit organization with a mission is to be even truer to our mission during a crisis. Because what happens in crisis is crisis forces you to, to go to what you actually believe. It's kind of like in the Bible, Solomon giving the two prostitutes the choice to either cut the baby in half or let the baby live. The pressure of that choice made them, made them go to what they actually thought. And the one who was actually invested in the baby was like, hmm. But the deepest part of that story was that the king actually heard the, heard the argument of two prostitutes. But that's the interesting part of that whole story. That's the king. Two prostitutes can come before the king. He heard it. <laughs> that, that alone is, is saying, telling you something. Well, you know, uh, you found your voice as a musician and a social activist. You know, lots of musicians find their voice, but nobody hears them. Uh, do you feel privileged to have the opportunity to get your voice out there? 
yes, more, more than privileged. All of this, to have this opportunity to play music, to be recognized, to be known. I just remember I saw my daddy struggle, so I didn't take any of that for for granted or think it just was going to happen. And uh, especially playing the kind of music I played and having the type of attitude I had, yeah, it was a long shot. And I wasn't even trying to be known or popular, really. I just wanted to follow my father's footsteps. And because I had seen him struggle so much, I didn't really have a vision of success or making money or being known or any of that. I mean, because he could play, too. So. Right. You know, speaking of, when you first started out, when I was a young kid in college, classical music was your thing. You were the go-to guy for classical trumpet solo playing. A couple years into that, uh, you came out with Black Codes. Uh, that just threw my world upside down. I'm like, what is Winton doing? And and it turns out that you were you were just really expanding yourself. Uh, you were you were trying something that you were probably familiar with your whole life, but we were hearing from you for the first time. Yeah, I actually came out here first, known playing with Art Blakey when I was 18, and I wasn't actually going to play classical music at all. Then I made my first record when I was 19 was a jazz record. So I actually, it, it, it left Juilliard. I wasn't going to play classical music. And a teacher of mine asked me if I could play a Vivaldi trump, two-trumpet concerto in a church. And I said, yeah, I could play it. And we played together, and it was on a radio show. And one of and my executive producer for jazz records at Columbia heard that tape and said, man, I, I didn't know you could play classical music. I said, you know, I play a little bit of classical music, but I'm not really uh, playing. He said, let me see if the classical division wants to put out a recording of you playing classical music. Would you be interested in doing that? I said, yeah, I practiced it for years. I wouldn't mind doing it. And at that time, record companies had blocked funds in the in the Eastern Bloc countries, in communist countries. Right. And it was an opportunity for me to go to Czechoslovakia and use those block funds to record an album. So I did it, and then that album, I ended up leaving there and going to London to do it. And uh, that, that record became known, but it was not something that I, I had planned on doing. And I was actually already out here playing jazz. Black Coast was my third or fourth record. So when you got into classical music, uh, you obviously didn't intend to stay there for a very long time. It was just a, a step on the way to being the Wynton Marcellus we know today. You know, I didn't know that I would be known or anything. I was a teenager. You know, I just <laughs> I liked the music. A guy gave me a recording of Maurice Andre on a streetcar in New Orleans, and I came home and I said, I wonder if I could play like this. I started to practice with the record of him playing high trumpet concerto, trying to play like him. And uh, so then I won a, a concerto competition when I was 14 to play with the New Orleans Philharmonic. And I started playing the music, but it was really something I just liked to do. It wasn't anything that uh, I could see as a career. It was not that, there was any, that I could see anybody doing that. And uh, my father was not prejudiced against different types of music, even pop music and funk music. He told me playing the band, but most of my gigs in high school were funk gigs, playing in a 1970s big Afro funk band. We was playing like uh, the Commodores and the, the Isley Brothers and, the, and Earth, Wind & Fire, that kind of music. Right. That's, I played three or four gigs a week in that band. And uh, I had other opportunities being in New Orleans to play classical music because there weren't many classical trumpet players and uh, play things like the circus or the ballet and then playing jazz. My father's a jazz musician, so I was always playing with him and playing traditional music because you could, we didn't like playing traditional gigs in the 70s because we considered it to be Uncle Tomish. Right. But because of my father, he would say, man, go play this gig or that. And then I would just do it because he, he, he suggested I would do it, but I didn't like doing it. I didn't necessarily respect doing it, but it felt great when you did do it. 
So I just had the opportunity to have all these experiences. Now that you're so well known as a performer and a composer and an educator, you've got 34 honorary degrees that obviously speaks something to your success. In today's education world, what do you think is right and wrong with music education today? Well, I think what's, what's right is the number of kids who want to play the music. What's wrong is the quality of music that most of our students are playing and the Americanness of the pedagogy. It's like what happened with American dance. Like, once you took all of the black out of it, you ended up just square dancing. Right. <laughs> and, you know, you could, you could square dance with everything else. You don't have to take everything black out of it. And those are decisions that were being made in, after World War II. So we live in post that world. So that's the foundation of the world that we're living post of that world. Now we have to uh, reconcile ourselves with our actual heritage, and that's very difficult to do because now we've built a mythology of untruth around things that were taken out. That it's not unusual for groups of people or for individuals to do that. We all reserve the right to create our mythology as we go along. But as we take out important parts of our mythology to shape our identity we would, the way we would like to see ourselves, when we come up against life or death situations where we have to be ourselves, then those lies hurt us. So how do we get that back into music education? How do we get music education back into teaching uh, the important facets of our history? We get, we have to, any change has to start with our programming and the, the music that we teach our kids. If it's good, as, if a good friend of mine, our education director, Todd Stoll, he always says, if it's, if it's great enough to play, it's great enough to play badly. You're going to be spending a week here uh, sharing your talents uh, with Jazz at Lincoln Center. Uh, you're going to be talking and, and bringing some of your wonderful social insight to the lecture series here at Chautauqua. You're going to be here for all of week nine. You're opening and closing the week of amphitheater lectures starting on Monday, August 19th. You're closing on Friday, August 23rd. What are you looking forward to most about your time here at Chautauqua? Well, I'm looking forward to always interesting people that I get a chance to meet and to learning different things. Just people at Chautauqua, they just come up to you and there'll be somebody who had 40, 35, 40 years experience running this or doing that. It's a very experienced, erudite people. So I always look forward to who I'm going to meet and what they're gonna, they, they will tell me and to, and to deepening my own education. That's, I think, the beautiful thing about Chautauqua is you always leave here just a little better no matter who you are. Yeah, most definitely. I'm so excited to spend some time with you today, Wynn Marcellus, one of my personal heroes as a young trumpet player growing up. Uh, you were definitely one of my biggest influences. Uh, so it was a real pleasure to get to talk to you today here live from the Cohen Multimedia Studios on the ground of the Chautauqua Institution. Uh, looking forward to seeing you this summer, Mr. Marcellus. So thank you so much for spending some time with us here today. Thank you very much, Brian. Good luck on your horn. It's a never-ending process. I think, <laughs> hey, I'm, I'm going to go do some of my, my Auburn etudes and some of the 14 etudes in the back to commemorate our conversation. Well, yes, thanks sir. again, Winton. Have a great afternoon. Yeah, all right. Bye-bye. Right, Brian. Take care, man. Thanks to Wynton Marsalis for joining us on CHQ&A today and to guest interviewer Brian Hanna of WQLN. You can listen for this program also on WQLN's airwaves in the coming months and on Brian's podcast, Better Than Monkeys. Our producer for this episode was Dave Munch. A version of this program may also air on our partner station, WRFA, listener-supported radio in Jamestown, New York, 107.9 FM. CHQ&A is a production of Chautauqua Institution, recorded in the Cohen Multimedia Studio. 
I'm Jordan Steves. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back shortly with another episode of CHQ&A. Thank you so much for joining me for this exciting episode of Better Than Monkeys featuring trumpet soloist Wynton Marsalis. I'm Brian Hanna. A special thank you to all our friends at the Chautauqua Institution, Jordan, Emily, Deborah. Thank you for making our time there so special. Thank you for considering WQLN to partner with you in recording this interview. And thank you, the listener, for joining me for this episode of Better Than Monkeys. If you'd like more information on the Chautauqua Institution, including Wynton Marcellus and the Jazz at Lincoln Center Orchestra residency, well, you can find all of that on the web at chq.org. Better Than Monkeys is a production of WQLN Radio.